You're listening to highlights from the creative process interview with Harold P. Sherson, philosophy teacher and administrator. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Well, about the singularity to begin with, I think it's kind of an enticing formulation of the future that seems to not only rest on a very optimistic view of what technology can do and will do, but also seems to incorporate a sense of redemption or almost a religious tone. It's a tendency which is as old as Gnosticism, I think, and a dream that people have had. It's a peculiar dream in my mind because, I mean, it's sort of saying that life is something like being in prison and what we need to do, the future that we ought to want for ourselves is to get out of jail. This is a profound denial of life, and uh, I guess that's what it is that, well, frankly bothers me, that uh, what we seem to be having is a view that technology can free us from problems that we have, whether these problems are because of climate change or whether it's a population shifts or demands on nature or something. It's as though nature has been the cause of our problem, and if we could only marshal our strongest self, which is seen in terms of this kind of calculative type of reasoning, then we'll be able to achieve something which is, I guess, utopian, but reminds me of some kind of semi-religious kind of... I guess I'm guided by the writings of Hans Jonas, who in his career began as someone who explained Gnosticism in terms of Western metaphysics and Western religious views more clearly and more in relationship to the human condition than anyone, and who then, in the course of his career, took up something like a philosophy of biology or an attempt to understand what he called the phenomenon of life or what is the particular characteristics of organismic life, which recognizes that we are material, physical, living creatures and not just minds that are trapped inside a body. And then toward the end of his career, turned uh, these interests, these dual interests, sort of the Gnostic problem, the uh, questions about life as he saw it, what really was the nature of, of organic or organismic life, to the question of technology. And there he kind of took off from his teacher, Heidegger, who had delivered a famous lecture called On the Question of Technology, in which Heidegger kind of warned that nature had become just a source of resources for us, commodities, what he called standing reserves, something that had no value other than our ability to exploit it and mine it and use it for our own limited purposes. And so this sort of warning call by Heidegger kind of, I think, inspired Jonas to think through more carefully, well, what do we do? And the argument he makes is that, uh, well, traditional ethics or the ethics that we know in any of the forms that have come to be prominent, whether it's utilitarianism, which is sort of consequentialist ethics, always act in a way so that the outcome of your action will produce the most benefit, or duty ethics, which simply says there are certain things which are good and right and necessary from an ethical point of view, and we must do it, regardless of the immediate or perceived consequences, or even the form of so-called character ethics or something like that that Aristotle developed, which saw the humans as striving to live in a way that embraced the good and developed community happiness as a consequence of this kind of embrace of life and connection to a community. All three of these traditions, Jonas argues, happen to be inadequate 
given the new powers in technology, in scientific technology, or what I call, along with others, technoscience. Because technoscience in the first place has increased the power of our actions by orders of magnitude that you can't even really imagine. So, you know, nuclear warfare being the most stunning example of that, that sort of awakened a whole generation to the need for something like engineering ethics or the complexity of machines that only a very, very small group of people have sufficient expertise to even understand how they work, to the fact that the consequences of technology are often irreversible, often don't appear until way in the future, so that you and I don't even really need to think about them, or at least in terms of ordinary kind of, you know, what is my duty or what is my contract to my children or my children's children? But beyond that, you know, we lose any sense of, you know, reality. And so for reasons like this, we need to somehow embrace a new way of thinking. This will manifest itself in a new ethics, but it has to begin with an understanding of the meaning of life and our relationship to nature and the value of nature. That, of course, you know, brings in all of the ecological concerns about the status of nature and other forms of life. Also raises us about the tendency that seems to be a little bit underway now in terms of kind of post-human existence, where people have kind of believed that humanity has sort of played itself out and that the next step is something sort of like a cyborg existence or, or even the singularity. So, so this is a complex of many problems that touches on science and religion and art and history and sociology and everything it just seems to be coming together. I mean, most of us are lost in our specialty and we're dealing with the piecemeal and we need to figure out what is the basis for a comprehensive way of addressing these things. What does it really mean to be human? And everybody is involved in thinking about this, but it seems to me that uh, we're a little bit lost in knowing how to think about it. I think that's wonderful, but not enough. I think we need to learn something new about how to think through the human condition. And it is this kind of interdisciplinary openness that I alluded to, but you know, I can't really say what it is. So we need to open up to you know, a deeper and more you know, genuinely human level of understanding and communication if we're ever going to you know, survive in this world. I had a student uh, some years ago. I was an outside reader for a PhD student at uh, Monash University in Australia, and she did her dissertation on the use of English as the global language of business and had many, many examples where contracts and various agreements were made in English where the parties absolutely did not understand each other. They completely assumed they were in agreement, but they weren't because of the different ways in which they understood English. So these were people who were operating in English from their own languages were different, you know, German and Chinese or something like that, but dealing in English. So uh, it only, you know, adds to my sense that if we're going to understand something like the human condition, and from that point of view, or from that perspective, begin to make advancements toward addressing the crucial and crisis problems that are facing humanity, we need to really learn to listen to traditions quite different than our own. Something that I was thinking about before when we were talking about the richness of language, I learned at one point that W.H. Auden did some teaching and he liked to teach Dante and he taught Dante to English-speaking students exclusively, but he had them read Dante aloud in Italian because he says, you don't get it without the music and the sound and the voice of it. So I'm just afraid that uh, the digitization of knowledge is narrowing at the same time 
deepening what we're doing and where that's bound to lead. I mean, it's going to produce many wonderful things, of course, but it's also going to leave behind some things which maybe in retrospect we will wish that we hadn't. For example, last week in my class in China, we were touching on AI ethics, artificial intelligence mm -hmm. ethics. And I asked the students as an opening kind of question, what do you think you know, might be necessary in order to have a, a, an ethics which addresses the particular powers of AI and how it's changing things and so on? And the first student that spoke said, well, you know, we're all so busy as students and we're working so hard that now we use chatbots to uh, write many of our essays to avoid the, the tedium of having to write out something. We know the concept and so the work of writing it out, that's wasted time in a sense. And uh, so then I said, well, does this raise any it's about authorship or, you know, who's responsible for the words or things like this? I pointed out that well-established science journals such as Nature were having a problem now because they were getting submissions that were written by chatbots. And the author didn't try to hide this. I mean, it wasn't, you know, pretending. He said, well, here's the data we collected. Here are the photographs of, from the lab and, you know, that kind of information. Here's all of the information. Now the chatbot writes a little summation of the information we're giving. And from their point of view, that is the authors who are no longer authors, I guess, they thought that was fine. And so I presented this to the student. I said, well, do you think that's fine? And, well, they had never thought about that. And they've said, no, we don't think it's fine. Well, what should you do? And, well, how do you regulate? At what point is using this kind of technology somehow taking away from the human the responsibility for the outcome that we're getting? And, well, they didn't know. And frankly, I'm not sure either, and I don't think anybody does, but that's just simple, concrete example of how it is that technology creates dilemmas, which until they happen, nobody would imagine them. I think that heirs uh, really need to be at the center of this discussion, and engineers, many of them don't see themselves as being there. I mean, we think of engineers as having a set of skills and sort of carrying out sort of simple technological design work and not much more. So... I always begin by saying, well, what do we mean by engineering? Rent already wrote about this. That we're living in a world that's primarily what we ourselves have made. We're not living in a natural world anymore. When Bill McKibben in his book writes The End of Nature, you know, the title was shocking to many people. But actually, of course, even when we're walking in beautiful parks, we're not in nature. We're in a world that has been created by technology, according to somebody's idea. So we have the built world, and engineers need to take care of it. The hardest part according to me, is on the design level. Because how, in the process of design, do you address the issue of the responsibility of engineers for creating the world that we're going to live in? I like to give talks where I say engineering is really a branch of the humanities. Why? Because, I mean, engineers are making the world that we live in, and they're taking care of the world that we live in, and they're designing the world where we're going to have options and opportunities. That's, you know, that's practical humanities, if nothing else. But at some point, when the crisis becomes too great, there's going to be less reflection about these kinds of solutions, and people are going to start adapting them out of belief that the only hope we have is through some kind of strong technological solution. And I think that what we need to do while we have time, and hopefully, you know, some sort of providential force will give us enough time, get away from this idea that the solution has to be found in terms of immediate practical, you know, things and sort of open up to the to grander subject. How do we understand what it is we're looking for? I have grandchildren. I very often think, what kind of world are they inheriting? 
So I, I think about this, I think in terms of my grandchildren, and I have a granddaughter who's just going into high school now, and she is filled with idealistic thoughts, and she's optimistic. She's a person who is both in love with art and in love with science. She doesn't think in terms of quarterly profits. She thinks in terms of human happiness and human good, and human fairness, and the beauty of nature, and all of these things just naturally come together in her head. And so that's what I think we need to do. I think the universities can play a part, schools play a part, but uh, there has to be kind of a utter general sense that this is how we should conceive the future. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.